Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. This afternoon, I have the pleasure of spending roughly an hour with Roger Gregory, Chief Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, the home base of which is here in Richmond. Is that right, Judge? That's correct. So, Judge, if if you'll allow, I'm just going to read your bio. Frankly, it's so substantive that I didn't want to take the chance that I might edit and miss something. So just indulge me for a second. Judge Gregory is formerly a partner in the law firm of Wilder and Gregory. He grew up in Petersburg, Virginia, and graduated from Virginia State College and then the University of Michigan Law School. He is the first African-American to sit on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, which includes the states of Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. President William J. Clinton recess appointed Judge Gregory to the court on December 27, 2000, and President George W. Bush commissioned his lifetime appointment to the court in July 2001. That was not a misstatement. Judge Gregory is the only person in the history of the United States to be appointed to a federal appellate court by two presidents of two different political parties and actually two administrations, obviously. Judge Gregory became chief judge on July 9, 2016. He is a member of the Judicial Conference of the United States that governs the federal judiciary. By appointment of the Chief Justice of the United States, Judge Gregory served on the Brown versus Board of Education 50th Anniversary Commission, established by the President and Congress to commemorate that landmark decision. Judge Gregory's many awards include the National Conference of Christians and Jews Humanitarian Award, the National Bar Association's Gertrude Rush and Equal Justice Awards, the Washington Bar Association's Charles Hamilton Houston Merit Medallion, the Old Dominion Bar Association's L. Douglas Wilder Vanguard Award, the Thurgood Marshall College Fund Award of Excellence, and the University of Richmond Law School's William Green Award for Professional as Excellence. You've clearly been busy over the course of your career. Well, I definitely have. Well, people have given me the honor to serve and recognize it, and I appreciate it. Judge, uh, I want to give our listeners some context of the man behind the robe. Where did you grow up? I alluded to Petersburg. Is that true, the city of Petersburg? Yes, I grew up in Petersburg. And for those who are history buffs of the Civil War like I am, Petersburg was the scene of the, the longest siege in the history of American warfare over 300 days. When Petersburg fell, Richmond fell thereafter, and the war ended about a week later. So I grew up around history and family, and my parents uh, didn't have a lot of formal education, but they instilled religious values and grew up in a very Christian home and hard work. And you were taught that uh, your word was your bond. That was kind of ethic and, and did those things and scouting and church activities and grew up just endless days of summer and play. I want to follow up on a comment you made that your word is bond. I remember growing up in the Richmond Bar and older lawyers imparting the same wisdom on me. And this was before the days that that email was a thing, but you were expected to have conversations with lawyers on the phone, reach an agreement or reach a compromise. 
and that word was considered bond. Do you remember that? Is oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you settled the case over the phone to say if the trial was two days later or the next day, you said it's settled. And you could depend on your worthy of colleague to say, tell the court, the case is settled. It was bond. It didn't have to be in writing. And to do something otherwise was just unthinkable and really uh, the end of your career in terms of, so it was monitored by just a mutual respect and understanding. So I learned it from my parents and it, it's, it's held me in good stead ever since. If you don't mind me asking, you were high schooled in Petersburg. Yes. When did you graduate? I graduated in 1971. I went to segregated schools from one through 11. And believe it or not, I was in the first class where finally Brown in his fullness came to our town because in 1970, we went from a black high school to a white high school and one high school. So it was an easy desegregation plan. If you went to high school, there was only one, Petersburg High. So that was the first class. It's really historic because uh, I had never gone to school with uh, white kids and we got together and we merged and we had one hiccup at the very beginning, but other than that, it was a smooth transition. And I have lifelong friends that I've met there in Petersburg High. And I always accredit to, it was a chance that we found the common ground that had been denied to us all those years. And I think we made good of it. It was a wonderful experience, but otherwise I grew up in segregated schools. In elementary school, my books were so old. In the, the very first hard part of the book, there were previous owners. And there was just enough room at the bottom for me to put my name at the bottom. But uh, thanks be to God that the little boy who barely had a place to put his name at the bottom is on the fourth circuit now. And that's not about me. That's about the people who endured those days of separation, but always believe that America's promise and its constitution meant more and could be better. So I appreciate that so much growing up there and seeing the fruition. I just wish my parents had lived to see me on the bench and I know they would be proud, but more importantly, I'll be happy uh, to represent them and all of those things they've given me. Something tells me your parents are still proud of you. Well, it? yeah, I think they're still with me. Yes, indeed. So I was a busing product. Were you bused as a student? No, walked to school every day. Huh. Petersburg was not that big, so I could make that probably about a mile and a half or two-mile walk to high school. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's fast forward. Well, let's not fast forward too much. Virginia State. Yes. So you didn't go far from home. I mean, you literally what, went down the street to college. That's right. I called myself. I was a brown bag college student. <laughs> Guess the people call it. I was a townie on the university campus. Virginia State has been a great alma mater, a true fostering mother, a spiritual mother. I did things there that I would not have been able to do in any other place. I mean, I, I went to uh, President Johnson's Civil Rights Symposium as a sophomore. It turned out to be the last public uh, appearance that President Johnson made and all the luminaries of the civil rights movement were there at the University of Texas. And it was just incredible. I presented my senior theses at a, at a conference of social and political scientists down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and went to Harvard a couple of years and competed in a model United Nations, two years. I mean, so it really gave me a great opportunity to uh, spread my wings and really get a first-class education and nurturing as well and some wonderful professors and mentors. University of Texas, Harvard, sounds like a far cry from the streets of Petersburg as a young boy, right? It was. Matter of fact, the trip to Texas, my first time riding an airplane. I was a townie, like you said, and my mom packed lunch for me. It was fried chicken sandwiches. <laughs> and I got on the, in the car and everybody was joking me, you can't hide a fried chicken sandwich. Right, right. 
but it was really a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. All right. So now University of Michigan, you obviously make a big decision to leave the safe confines of Petersburg and head up to Ann Arbor. Did you just have a hankering for cold weather? Was there something about Michigan in particular that drew you that far away? I remember at that time, it was always Harvard, Yale, and Michigan, or Harvard, Michigan, and Yale in terms of ranking. So it was a fine law school, but you're right. The cold weather was a, <laughs> a shock. And you know, for an uh, African-American boy from a small town, a historically black college going that far away with about 30 plus thousand students in Ann Arbor, it was cultural, geographical, Climate shock, but a wonderful opportunity for a great education, legal education. Yeah, it's wonderful. All right, I'm going to break the rules that we're taught, but do what all trial lawyers do. I'm going to ask you a horribly compound question, and you answer it in any way you want, right? So you're at Michigan, you're approaching graduation. Are you thinking, and what year is this again that you were? Uh, in 78, I graduated. Late 70s, were you thinking public sector, private sector? Were your interests more aligned with corporations or individuals? In other words, what was the trajectory in Roger Gregory's mind? Well, that's an easy question, Michael, and it's one that I don't recommend to any uh, law student. I was tunnel vision. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a trial lawyer, and that was my focus. And I wish it had been broader, like looking at clerkships or things like that. But that was my focus. I always saw myself as being a trial lawyer and doing that. So it was private practice I was looking at. But I knew that if I wanted to serve my clients, I had to have experience and being taught and nurtured by the best. So I went to a big law firm in Detroit, one of the oldest law firms in Detroit, but long. And it was a wonderful firm, wonderful experience. But believe it or not, my first practice was I was a tax lawyer. Hmm. And because L. Hart Wright, he taught me uh, tax at Michigan, and he, he's the principal author of the 1950 Revenue Code, he was just awesome. So for the first year at the big firm, I was a tax lawyer. So it helped me in terms of statutory interpretation, writing a private ruling, request letters. And I loved it, but our partner had some products liability cases, and I won't name the company, but a big manufacturer you would know. And I asked for permission to work on it. And I never went back to taxes. I worked in litigation at Detroit firm. And so that was the beginning of my trial. But I love it because I think the statutory grounding was really good, particularly what I'm doing now and do a lot of in those interpretations. So that was the beginning at the firm in Detroit. And then I uh, came to, uh, because I always saw myself as being a, a Southern, Southerner and a lawyer in the South and back in Virginia. So I came back after two years in Detroit I went to, came to Hunting and Williams, and I was a litigator. And again, I've been blessed with have some incredible mentors. I worked for Lewis Booker, who was just one of the finest lawyers in the country. And um, a fellow of the college. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, he was, Lewis Booker was just superb. I remember speaking at his funeral, and it was just so emotional and wonderful in terms of what he had done, in terms of, he taught me to be a, a litigator which is so important, those deposition and interrogatories and request for omissions and starting with bait stamping and doing all those things that you do. But those were the foundational things that you need if you're going to be a good trial lawyer. And I know both of them come together because sometimes people are great trial lawyers, but they're not great litigators. And vice versa. And vice versa. Absolutely. Those depositions and doing those things and their foundation. So I got a good grounding there. Is the bench anywhere in your head? 
Absolutely not. No, I love practicing law. I was the managing partner of the firm. And the, Ed Wilder and Gregory. Ed Wilder and Gregory. And once uh, the governor uh, became governor. Right. Yeah, yeah. That person, he who shall be named, yes, L. Sir. Douglas Wilder. L. Douglas Wilder, yes. Also known as Doug Wilder. It's Doug Wilder, yeah. And it's a lot of people, he's Doug. And he never lost a common touch with people, which I thought was just amazing. I admired so much that he walked with kings and queens, but he walked with the commander and he understood the essence and the value of all people. And he was able to interpret that as a trial lawyer. And that's what I really love and learned from him, that, you know, that every case has a meaning and it's a human meaning. I call it the nuance of the human experience and translating that into a factual scenario that pushes your view and theory of the case and hopefully be persuasive to a jury or the trial fact. And that's what I really got. It's the alchemy of trial work that I love. And that chemistry, he was a chemistry major. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a chemistry major undergrad. I could tell he had, and I love science too. He had those grains of that scientific method, but the art of the word form and communication. So his reputation as a trial lawyer persists to this day. I, I take it you've seen him in action? Absolutely. We used to try cases together and did a lot of criminal defense work, and we'd play good guy, bad guy. I would do the direct on our client, and he would do the cross-examinations. And I was going too far. He knew it sometimes. He and Leo said, Roger, that's enough, because he knew the, the point of diminishing returns. Sure. And so I learned that thing, like when you sail, like when the helm is just right on your point of sail, you can feel it. You got the fastest flow on the water. And that's that skill that it can be taught, but it also has to be nurtured with a sort of a drive to feel it and to try to capture it. Did you and Governor Wilder, who would have then been Doug, go through an adjustment where you were figuring out the right equilibrium, right? So what I'm getting at is if you got two trial lawyers, really two roosters at counsel table, that can either work or it can fail miserably. How did you figure out the right rhythm for two roosters? That's a great question, Michael, and it's a simple answer. Because I never left the basis and the foundation of our meeting. Again, Virginia State, he was an adjunct professor. He taught me constitutional law in two classes. It was night classes, and it helped inspire me to be a lawyer. But to me, I was always a student. So it was never that sort of competition. It was always, I'm trying to be there. I was truly like an elbow law clerk is at the elbow looking into that at this, in real time. So we never had that clash. We really didn't. We Instead, it was symbiotic sort of like where it worked. It was, it was wonderful. So we never had that. We just worked. And then as I went on and, and what I love about it, University of Michigan, two big law firms, it didn't matter. When I was working with clients in Churchill, they would say, you working with Doug now? Yes. What do you know about the law? They didn't care what was on the diploma and all those things and what your letters were. They wanted to know, are you a lawyer? And that's what Governor Wilder taught me, to be a lawyer to a lawyer and clients understand that. Because clients really look at how much respect you have to other lawyers. Oh, and they sure. respect for you. You have to carry that not with ego, but humility that's in strength. So we never had that clash. We never did. It really worked really well and, and sort of I took over the mantle after he left his managing partner. And again, to this day, I'm still his student. I bet I'm still his student. One of the things I, I struggle with when I talk to students, law students in particular, who invariably say, what advice do you have on how I should go about selecting a practice area? What do you tell law students about how to 
construct a trajectory for their practices? You know, I think it has to be natural. I think you come into law school, you, sometimes you want to conquer the world, sometimes you know exactly what you want to do. And like you said, sometimes you don't. But let it flow naturally. Find your strength. But the best thing to do is don't cabin yourself too quickly. Like, for example, I didn't in tax. I had no idea. Someone said in 1975 when I stepped foot in the first class in Michigan that I was going to be a tax lawyer three years later. I said, you're crazy. But I gave myself space to create what I might become. And that's what I tell them. You know, don't ever block the road to what might be where you really need to be. And believe it or not, you don't know enough about yourself and certainly not your future to foreclose anything that might be getting you there closer and learning and seeing the law and appreciating it. And I, I love the law. I really do. It was always fun. It was fun to me. You know, law school had its moments, but I, I loved the professors and I just was always a sponge because I knew the end of the day, grades were important, but I was blessed to get some really good firms that I went to. But more importantly, would I leave with what was necessary to practice law in the 21st century? And that's how Michigan was. They wouldn't care about reading what the law is now. I want to teach you how to think and serve as a lawyer, no matter what the law might be, because you have the tools, the analytical tools to do that. So that's what I tell them. Get all the tools. Like Mark Twain said, if the only tool you have in your box is a hammer, you'll see all problems as nails. But all problems aren't nails. You can't define the problem by what your tool is. So keep putting tools in your box. That's what I tell them. Put tools in your box, and then as the problems come along, you'll use them, sorry, item, as it comes, as it's ad hoc. And that's my philosophy about it, and that's what I tell them. Segwaying somewhat, I'm going to ask you another big, loaded question. There's nothing wrong with being a good trial lawyer, nothing at all. In your experience, what's the difference between an, uh, a great or an excellent trial lawyer and a good, perfectly acceptable trial lawyer? Mm. You know, I think that perhaps that a good lawyer seldom loses a case they should win, but okay. a great lawyer often wins cases they should lose. I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> you can steal it. That's original. You can steal with, with like uh, attribution, not necessary. Right. But I think it is. That's the difference. You know, if good lawyers, in a case they're supposed to win, they seldom lose them because they got the fundamentals, they know it, the law, they're prepared, they're ready. But the difference in the great lawyers, the needling hard ones, they often win those. And that's what you're always looking for, you know, to get to that level. All right. Another compound. Your days of trying cases are probably over. You never know in the life of Roger Gregory. Never right? know what comes next. But <laughs> let's assume that, that you're going to finish it out on the bench. As a judge, as an appellate judge, what do you observe as the most common substantive mistake of trial lawyers? And then the second part of this question is, are there parallels between trial advocacy and appellate advocacy? I think there are. You know, I spent a lot of time with my law clerks. We looked through, I mean, pages and pages of record. So looking through the lens of an appellate judge, looking at the performance of the trial lawyer, and often we don't see that lawyer. We'll see someone else who's more, you know, specialized in appellate advocacy. And the big mistake is really not understanding the case. You know, what really is the essence of the case and not making a good record. For example, if you have a winning point and the, and the trial judge is with you, then you always want to try to push the judge to make a finding of fact in your favor if you want. 
because that makes it sort of yeah, <laughs> impervious true. to a review. Because we don't review credibility and findings of fact. It has to be clearly erroneous, clearly erroneous. So many times, so you want to make sure you want to keep your win. So you have to always think about where you are and where this might go to. So a lot of times they fail to protect the win. Also, they fail to, to explore alternative grounds to win. Because sometimes we will affirm on alternative grounds. So I think it's always important to look at the whole thing and that is as the trial and, and not understanding, not making objections. For example, many times in, in criminal cases, the lawyer will make a hearsay objection. Why would make a hearsay objection? There are a zillion exceptions to hearsay, but very few for the right of confrontation. Make it under Sixth Amendment. Objection, Sixth Amendment, confrontation, as opposed to hearsay. I mean, things like that, I mean, it just helps you get a better edge, and it makes the judge sort of, she comes back on her heel a little bit and say, well, this, yes, judge, it's, it's violates the Constitution. Confrontation, not hearsay. You know, they, they can be one of the same. They overlap. But if you Venn diagram it, there are a whole lot more barbs out there that get you in hearsay than it would be under confrontation objection. So understanding the law and where you are and where it might go to, that's what I see because I see the cold record. And I can't do anything about the record. The record is what it is. And I've seen some, I won't name any, but I've seen some lawyers ruin some very good cases. I never forget as a medical malpractice case, the record, the lawyer had understood the case better. It clearly would have been a different result, but you're stuck with where you are and not understanding what stipulations are. So you have to be very careful when the defense makes a stipulation. You say, oh, I'm, I'm home free. No, listen carefully. What did they stipulate to? And they did not understand what the bounds of the stipulation were, and they needed to take it another step. And it was right there. So that's what I see sometimes, mistaken, not understand the essence of the case and what it might portend for a potential appeal as an appellee or an appellate. So, Judge, I think I won't ask you whether you agree with this. I'll just say my theory is that trial lawyers are, to some degree or another, fundamentally alphas, or at least in their mind, they are alphas. And one of the pitfalls for alphas is we tend to labor under a false confidence. And so here's what I mean. I assume I understand my facts better than anybody else. I settle on a notion of the case and I convince myself that my theory of the case is the right one. Have you seen instances where lawyers labor under that false confidence that their version is the only right one at their peril? In other words, the inability to self-edit, to self-critique, to critically think about your theory of the case in anticipation of the other side. Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately, you see it too often. You box yourself in. If, in fact, you are correct in your theory and your view of it, it'll withstand your self-examination and rethinking. <laughs> That's the good thing about it. If it's that strong, then it will not whisk away because you dare to say, let me step back and look at it from a different lens. You might see there's an exposure, the blind side. And I very quickly, I'll say this, Professor Elhard Wright, my tax professor, he said something I never forgot. He said, when you get an exam question, but I knew right away it had greater impact than just an exam. He said, don't start writing the exam question, the answer. He said, instead, read it carefully, sit back, take a deep breath and say to yourself, facts, what should I do? But he said, because it's always the facts that tell you what to do. That's where the lawyer makes a mistake. 
you know, he or she will come to conclusions, but those conclusions must be in the crucible of the facts. And you find yourself making errors when you impose conclusions as opposed to come and let the facts come up to you as opposed to you imposing downward, let it come up to you. And you'll say, because I've seen lawyers, I won't name the case, in a criminal case, the prosecutor never saw the value of the photograph. I saw it immediately, but he never did because he had already presumed what the value of the case or the, or the exhibit was to show how grisly the murder was. But I, I mean, I turned, not only did he miss an important point, I turned it on him because I told the jury, I said, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, everybody knows you bleed when you stab. This was only given to you because he wanted to divert your attention to the grisly scene and to abdicate your duty to look at the facts and apply the laws the court will give you. That's why he did it. But he never saw it. And I tell lawyers all the time, if no matter how much law you know, if you don't see the facts, so let it talk to you. I, I used to have to sit down sometimes 15, 20 minutes, look at a photograph. Say, what's in there? Tell me what's in there. A crime scene, an exhibit. And you, if you look and you'll see something you never saw before. It's, oh, small pieces. That helps you avoid that ego, dig in at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Our listeners don't know this, but I do. You're a thespian. <laughs> and I didn't know that word until a few years ago, which oh, means a person of the theater. That's right. Person Are there parallels the between your work in the theater and trial work? I would imagine so. They are. You know, it's a... Uh, I love theater. I've been doing professional theater now for about 20 years. I mean, I've done August Wilson plays. And the last thing I did, I played Chief Justice John Marshall at a film that was done on the Burr indictment for treason. And we did it in Colonial Williamsburg, right there in that, that setting. It was awesome. And so I've done those things and uh, plays, and I write a play every year, and I direct it and produce it. And uh, I love it. I've, so this is serious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The only part that's not serious is that I don't get paid because I have restrictions. So when other actors get paid on payday during the run, I don't. But I smile because I'm paid more than any money could imagine. I love it. I've done, like, Skill of Mockingbird, I had 40 performances. So it was like a two-month run. And so I, 7.30 at night when I leave the office, I go to rehearsal, 10, 11 o'clock, and I'm just refreshed and energized. I would do it full time, but you know my family get used to eating and staying on home and those kind of things. But if I could break them out of that, I might try. <laughs> so one of the observations of trial work, of the legal profession generally, but certainly of trial work, is that it can be very stressful. As yeah. you say, maintaining the adrenaline while you're on notice, not to mention while you're actually in trial, coping with the outcome, managing clients. It sounds to me like theater and I know you family was very important to you. Mm. So let's let's cabin aside, as mm. you would say, family. Right. Theater was theater the balance to the stress of the job for you. Oh yeah, it was. It, it was. And, and is it, that important for lawyers? Absolutely. You need to have some outlets, constructive outlets, where you just can let your creative side. You know, because all day you're writing in active voice, and everything has to be tight, non-ambiguous, and structured. You need to get out of the lines out of the lines. And I like to I sail, but then I got on the court, I wasn't using it, so I sold the boat. So I'm trying to do that again. But I love it, history and reading, but but theater I love. It's really nice. And I write plays based on, I take small objects. And from there, I don't know what the play is about, but I just 
from there, I just keep going back, 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 and the characters begin to take on life. So it's fun because your left brain, right brain changes. That's why you really should do it for good mental health and, and, and memory. You should do things with your left and right hand, things that you always do right hand, switch up the left. It's amazing how the brain works. Buttoning your coat requires so many different functions in the brain. That's why occupational therapists, they do things like that, button that up. And they want to say, well, I know how to button up, just do it. And you're helping your brain get back into those multiple uses and places. So it really is not only just stress, but it's long term because, you know, it's susceptible to, of course, with memory loss as you get older. So you want to just because you think you're engaged in law, a lot of times we're susceptible to it because we don't get that variation there. So it's really good. So what theater is, is fun and, and managing actors, you know, it's like herding cats, you know, so it's fun. Or managing lawyers. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. why I got a good experience. Good yeah. experience. Yeah. So one more question about your experiences with theater, and I want to relate it to our audience in their trial work. When I'm in the well of the courtroom, certainly doing opening and closings, even doing voir dire, but occasionally while I'm questioning a witness, I'm always sensitive to the jury's reaction to me, right? So anytime a lawyer opens his or her mouth and the lawyer's on their feet, the lawyer's performing to an extent, you are projecting. Have you ever wondered, or do you have any advice to our listeners on how to read jurors in their effort, in the jury's effort to scrutinize, deconstruct, peel back the layers, right? Have you ever seen in the eyes of a juror an effort to figure out what's real in what the lawyer is saying and what the lawyer is doing? Because I'm always sensitive to that. Am I overselling? Am I underselling? How did you manage? Well, first of all, good cross-examination starts with being a good listener. I can tell watching a trial where the lawyer is not a good listener by the way they cross-examine because some things are already done. You don't have to do anything. Say that for summer. All you're going to do is give the witness a chance to come back and hurt you. So you're not a good listener. But other thing too is when the other lawyer is in front of the jury, I'm always watching them watch her or him because that will let you know when they're making good points. If they're leaning forward, intense eyes, they got them. Those are the areas you need to watch out. Like, for example, I call it when, when the lights are out after lunch and they have exhibits and all the thing, don't even object. All you're going to do is wake them up. If the other side is presenting that, <laughs> you're just waking them up just to let it just monotone, be quiet, things like that. So they are the great barometers. They can tell you whether there's a storm coming or it's going to be fair winds and following seas. So, yeah, absolutely. Great barometers. Give our audience just one nugget of a favorite trial experience if you have one. And I, that's a tough question sometimes. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, I How think, about a memorable one? I think a memorable one is that uh, I was trying a murder case, defending a woman, and it was um, the defense was self-defense, and the man was very abusive and those kind of things. And she, you could see she bore the scars of a hard journey on her face. And one that somebody, you know, as uh, Lincoln would say, one made little note nor long remember. So what I did was, and I, I did it as if it was sort of spontaneous, a rubber band in closing argument. And I said, it's like this rubber band here. I said, a scientist will tell you every time you stretch it, even though you don't see it, it loses a very, very minuscule point of elasticity. And you keep stretching. That's how she was. Every day he had beat on her. She looked like the same person. But as I was talking to them, I was doing that. 
and I timed it perfectly to yeah. our audience. Oh. He's, he's, he's making, moving my hand yeah. back and forth <laughs> as I talk to them, and it popped. Huh. Is she at fault because she popped? No, it's just the chemistry of life. Elasticity will go away every time you're beat on, and he thought he could just do that because she was someone the world didn't care about. But I know we do. How did the college miss you? I don't get this. I don't, I don't anyway. <laughs> it was story, fun. Different story. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Right. Without judging your peers, without commenting on your peers, how do judges facilitate or frustrate a good trial? Hmm. Well, the facilitating part is when they're prepared, they know the law, and they follow it. And they do so without any favor on one side or the other. In other words, they facilitated by giving everyone, assuring fairness and neutrality. I know that's difficult sometimes, but if judges can do that, they know the law, they follow the law, and they assure fairness and neutrality, that's the best that they can do. And I think that's, that's admirable. And temperament goes with that, and that helps with fairness and smoothness, and people aren't intimidated or, or so nervous that they don't represent their client, that shouldn't be the case. It should be, no, you have every opportunity. Counsel is your time to do this. You may proceed in a way that you encourage them to do, but you don't interject. Here's the part where it can be frustrating. Interjecting it is impossible to do so equally. Like I was always frustrated by that. The other side, that's what an adversarial system is. You depend on your other side missing something. When the judge says, excuse me, uh, let me ask this question. How far were you when it you And that's were, when the lawyer drops his head. Exactly. Or her head. And you can't do it equally. But we did that successfully when in the case, and we were trying a case with every witness we put on and for the defense, the judge questioned them. Everyone, none of the prosecution. So in closing argument, we said, we use it to bolster the our witnesses. Ladies and gentlemen, all of our witnesses stand unrefuted, and even through the test of the judge's questions, every one of them, they stand. Hmm. Record will bear exactly that. But you use that respectfully because the jurors are going to make this decision. You respect the court, you follow the court, and you never misrepresent anything to the court. And again, your word is your bond, particularly you're an officer of the court. But who's going to decide this case? The trial facts. One of my friends said that a bench trial is a slow guilty plea. Sure. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So you respect that. But Criminal practitioners can relate to that. Absolutely. That's absolutely. But it's a lot of fun. You're obviously on the Fourth Circuit, an appellate court. You're the chief judge of the Fourth Circuit. It sounds to me, though, that you might have had more fun sitting on the district court bench, presiding over <laughs> juries. <laughs> Want to leave that one unanswered? No, 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 no. I know. I, I know. I, I can answer for you. The answer is the previous answer I just gave you. I did not want to be a meddling judge. Huh. I think that I would be sort of chomping at the bit sometimes to the fill in the gap. Lawyer. The old trial lawyer think, come on, how do you not ask this question? So I love being a trial lawyer, but I like the appellate because I, I'd rather be away from it. In that sense, now I'm totally away from it. Lawyers can't come to the chamber and, the, and those kind of things. And it's all on the record and oral argument when we give it. So I, I love that part of it. With my law clerks, it's history, it's, it's research, it's analysis. So I, I love that, that aspect of it. So no, I have a lot of respect for the district court and the trial judges because they do heavy lifting and do a great job. But I like what I do. I, I like it. And the law clerks are like my law firm. 
I got some associate. I don't have to pay their salaries either. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, so I have these I have these wonderful associate attorneys who are just incredibly smart. And I challenge them. I always say, listen, I don't want a roadmap to where I'll say it this way, because Justice Frankfurter, uh, Felix Frankfurter said it better than I could. He said that an opinion ought not to be just the expression of mere will. It should be the effort of reason to discover justice. So that's what I'm trying to do. Take the effort for reason. If it doesn't work, there's a reason why it doesn't work. Then it's not right. You can't force it. And so it has to be reason and analysis because there are 14 other judges who willing in a very civil way to tear it apart. Mm -hmm. So when you put your proposed opinion out, you get a letter like, oh, thank you so much, Judge Gregory. Appreciate your proposed opinion. I have a few views. You may get a 10-page paper, and you have to answer that. That's what we do on the Fourth Circuit. You have to. You can't say, well, okay, it's, uh, you know, you're not on the panel. No, I respect that. So I look at that. That's how we test our reasoning. And one time, sometimes, a few times, not many, but I've been in the majority, and I'm the authoring judge. I wrote the proposed majority opinion, got the dissent, and read it. And I said, you know, call the judges, you know, you convinced me. And I said, with just a few tweakings of your dissent, I think it should be the majority opinion and I will join it. Because it's not about ego in trying to get it right. It's not the mere expression of will, like Justice Frankfurter said. Instead, it's the effort of reason. I'm not a captain of that reason. That reason is on other my colleagues. And I should appreciate that and see it when it exists and not resist it for a purpose of just for the pride of authorship. That makes so much sense. Yeah. There's a lot of talk these days, and I think for good reason, about the importance or a lot of recognition of the importance of diversity and inclusion. Some people use the term equity. Why, if you believe it does, does diversity, inclusion, and equity matter in the practice? I think it matters because inclusion and equity and diversity, it's the core of what the law and our constitutional government is and our ideals as a nation. We have not always lived up to those ideals, but diversity helps us. And I think the key is that it can't be just superficial. You have to embrace it. And you embrace it by really believing that I'm bereft of something when I don't have it. As long as you think, well, I'm doing this because I'm required, it looks good, then you never really buy into your loss of something. You know, for example, if you're on an island and one person is a surgeon or a physician, and when you have a medical problem, you look to that person and you look to them not because of diversity or profession. You appreciate that there's something that she has that if without it, your survival depends on it. And I think we have to look at justice that way and the rule of law. Without it, we can't be what we should be. And you can't be who you should be until you stop being what you've become. And if we've become a nation that's separated and divided against itself and without its best tools, we're leaving sometimes, we're leaving arrows in the quiver. that shoot them all to the idea of justice and rule of law. So, no, I think it's essential. Yeah. It is essential. I feel guilty now that we're going to go into the lightning round. <laughs> I want to be able to get you back, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respect your time. So the tension between spontaneity and notes, outlines, written out questions versus projecting cold or in real time. Did you have a preference? Do you have any advice? Well, I would say this way. I love it. I don't have to make a choice because I believe preparation is the mother of spontaneity. 
is when you're prepared that you can understand what spontaneity is. You can recognize when you need to deal with this. You know the parameters are there. It's not at the expense of one or the other. Spontaneity is good in many ways because you know, obviously you have to object on time and do those things. But I, I think the whole idea of preparation, 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 it will give rise to better eyes, better ears. And so you'll be ready to take advantage of those those spontaneous moments when your dear colleague on the other side has made an error or has gone too far. Like Mo Levine, who I think one of the best trial lawyers ever, he was in the New York State Trial Lawyers Association. But he talked about, you know, when the defense is trying to bring prejudice into the case, he said it had nothing to do with it. He said, you have to fight that, tell the jury, you have to fight against prejudice because that is injustice, just as much injustice as sympathy. And I didn't ask for sympathy. And I'm demanding and begging you not use the injustice of prejudice. So that's the way plaintiff's lawyers can use this. I didn't hear, I'm not begging you for sympathy, but don't let them bring in prejudice because that's <laughs> injustice too. So, I mean, so Molavine was very good at that and seeing both sides of that and understanding that. So, yeah, yeah. I love that. There's a, a local criminal lawyer who's a friend who's got a gigantic personality. I used to try cases against him as a prosecutor when he was a defense attorney. And I hated it until I figured something out that this guy was incapable of fourth and third gear. Everything was fifth gear. And if you allowed, he could suck the air out of the courtroom, sometimes to the detriment of, of his client. Right. right? What's your advice to lawyers on managing personalities once the gavel falls? Trial begins. Is it the lawyer that's the most important thing, even when the lawyer's on his or her feet, or is it something else? How do you manage personality and chemistry? Well, going back to theater, I think the lawyer is a supporting actor, not the star. Hmm. You're not the headliner, because I think it, it tends to distract from your case. Jurors are very smart. You're headed for a train wreck if you underestimate their intelligence, their observations. Now, you can use a balance. There's sometimes when your persona helps to carry some gravitas to your point. And that's okay if it's done in a low-key way. But if you're just, as you said, you said it well, sucking all the air out, it's not enough room for the, even the jurors to breathe and exhale and to absorb. So, no, I, I don't think that the lawyer ought to be the main thing. You know, you're there, but you'll be there by sometime in your silence and all kinds of things you, you can do, uh, just that pause. And, and even in the way you has, can say no further questions, you know, just the way your tone of voice, I don't have anything to ask this witness. Just like saying that. And jurors, oh, they get the idea they've said nothing. But, of course, that has to be the case. But you want to punctuate it. You do that with tone, subtlety, persuasion. Sometimes persuasion is not accomplished with being a huge ego because you're in a sense that jurors, it's nice and fascinating, but at the end of the day, sometimes they're intimidated by it. And the, the strong will, a person, a personality type on that jury when they get in the box, I just didn't like the way we were always pushed around. Like everything was like what she said or he said. Sure. Yeah, because don't forget, they got the mic. As they say, you know, the comedian, you heckle, but comedian has the mic. They have the mic at the end because they're going to speak the verdict, speak the truth. This past spring, I did a bench trial, and 
the verdict was okay, but it was not to my liking. It was not my preferred <laughs> outcome. But I remember commenting with one of my co-counsel that I'd made the mistake and tried that case to a jury instead of trying it to the judge. What's your sense of the difference between trying cases to the bench versus a jury? Do judges pick up on the same, look for the same cues that you think jurors do? Oh, I think they do. But obviously, well, I shouldn't say it's obvious, but very, very likely judges are not going to be as persuaded. And sometimes you have to be careful. The more theatrics you use, the more they don't want to seem to be gullible. Like, I'm buying this. It can, come on. You know, so you have to be very careful with that. I think it's a different. I can give you an example. One of my trials I had early on, and it was a jury trial, and I lost the case. I was one of the rare ones I was playing because I did mostly defense work. But I had the blessing of S.W. Tucker, who's a great civil rights mm -hmm. lawyer. I mean, the ilk of, you know, you Sam know, Tucker. You know, Sam Tucker, yeah, with Oliver Hill and Brown and all those wonderful lawyers in those cases he had. He said at the end of the case, he said, listen, you did a good job. I'm going to tell you the difference was you had the law on your side and you had the facts, but I had the jury. I never forgot that. And he's right. It's the jury you're on your side. And it's different when you're trying a bench trial. You can't use that dynamic like you can in a jury trial because that's sort of that safety net. That's the place where you have to correct things. Yeah. So am I hearing this right? You actually tried a jury against Sam Tucker. Absolutely. One of the best wins I could ever have. That's the loss I brag about. Unbelievable. Yeah. Judge, why do institutions like the American College of Trial Lawyers matter anymore? Well, you know, I think you said it at the top when you talk about the intro in terms of an effort to inspire and to elevate. And that's what it does. I mean, some of the best lawyers, as the French would say, the creme de la creme. One of the best ways to uh, make up for a lack of experience in trial work is to see good trial lawyers try cases. And that's what you do. I mean, in the programs you have, and people don't always recognize or at least acknowledge or let you know, but they're watching. And the American College of Trial Lawyers, that's the creme de la creme, the top. So I respect that. And I know a lot of lawyers look at that as great examples. And that's what you do. You give us the bar, literally, keep it high always achieving in the sense like, you know, you, you never get there necessarily, but you're always trying to try that perfect trial because you're seeing some of the best organized and you're giving back to the bar and bench. Yeah. And I see that because we, I tell you this, we really appreciate the work that's done. So it's a great arm of the judiciary to have lawyers who give back like that. So very important. And I'm very privileged, this little boy from Petersburg to be interviewed by you and very proud of you and your work with such tender years. You have accomplished a lot, and so you certainly represent the college very well. Thank you, Judge. You've always struck me as someone who is at peace with himself, if not the world around him. What advice do you have to us, to the trial lawyers, mm -hmm. on attaining peace of mind? I try to do it through the power of humility. And people don't understand the power of humility because they mistake it for things like modest. Modest is when you say, well, I know I'm great, but you, you don't have to mention it. And it's not low esteem. That's, I may have skills, but I'm not self-confident enough to actualize them or to recognize them. Humility is strength because of that you are not responsible. That if there's a light to be seen in me, it is the light from many lamps. Lamps that were lit by people who were teachers back in those segregated schools, who were mentors at Virginia State, 
who young lawyers and older lawyers like Sam Tuck and uh, Mentor Douglas Wilder, those lamps, they're lit. So when you do that, you don't have to go around like with your chest bringing out because you're not, I'm not a luminous, I'm illuminated. <laughs> That's the difference. And so you shine in that light and you appreciate that and you're thankful for it. And to the extent you can inspire those young kids, I said, sitting in the chairs and they can see that light from those many lamps, then that's good. And I'm, I'm at peace with that. And it's not about ego or ambition, but it's about being able to toil in this wonderful profession we call the law with some wonderful people. And I've been blessed for now 43 years to do it. And it's a great privilege. Judge, that's a wrap for me. And this has been nothing but a great privilege for me as well. Did we cover it all? We did. And you did, you did a masterful job. Well, Thank I, you. I had an easy, <laughs> easy uh, subject in there. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.